This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys. Um, Part two with Dr. Will Goolsby and Dr. Marcus Lashley. We're going to talk about predators this week. It's going to be uh, on this podcast. Not sure how they're going to drop, but um, we're going to cover some stuff that Matt and I have not covered in years past in discussion of this topic. So um, it's going to be a really good one, I hope, um, for our devout followers. You might want to have our back on this one because we may get fed to the wolves. (laughs) So, uh, um, guys, we appreciate you listening each and every week. And we encourage you to listen to uh, Wild Turkey Science podcast each and every week as well. Such a a, a, a great new podcast to to follow along on. And um, without further uh, rambling, let's just go ahead and jump into it. I appreciated the predator pun that you had there, Adam. Yeah, fed to the wolves. Fed to the wolves. That was appropriate. <laughs> There's going to be some wolf love uh, wolf lovers that chime in uh, after this one. So that one's for them. Big shout out to them. (laughs) Well, maybe you'll help the wolves out for those. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, (laughs) who knows? Um, So we talked in in part one about all things habitat and we discussed the uh, baiting um, podcast you did on Primo's Mm -hmm. uh, Primo's podcast. You've done a lot more predator minded podcasts. It seems like, um, since you guys launched wild turkey research and i think it for for a lot of reasons it's very beneficial because it is such a hot topic controversial topic um when you kind of you know it, to to unpack you know let me just ask a simple question going into this pre 2015 let's say cuz i feel like 2010 was kind of starting 06 was like the best, I think the largest harvest rate of harvest numbers in Missouri turkey history. And 2010 was still really good, but 2015 started to be kind of like, you know, we didn't notice it at the time, but starting to be less turkeys here in Southern Missouri where, where my family farms at and I've hunted my entire life. 2020, it was like prime time where you're like, uh Oh, what's happened. I'm not hearing them like I used to for you guys. Pre-2015, what was your belief in predator management for game birds? And has that changed now, 2023? Good question. <laughs> Marcus, you want to take that one on first? <laughs> That's all you will. All yeah. you. So, uh, I, Will, you're, you're definitely better positioned to, to address this kind of question because you, you did a lot of research, like as yeah. part of your your graduate work is That's a good sort of in the right middle there. yeah don't think that i'm not gonna address it directly <laughs> but i think will is more uh suited man this is a, yeah this is a tough one it, it's a tough one that i've moved on a lot over the years to to you know just right off the bat address your your question adam um i started trapping i want to say when I was early in college, um, I was mostly a deer hunter at the time. We didn't have a lot of turkeys around, so I didn't get into that till later. But um, 
I started trapping uh, with the direct intent to improve fawn recruitment um, on the site that I, I primarily hunted. It was a permission piece in North Georgia, kind of in the foothills there. A lot of closed canopy forest, not a lot of deer production. Um, so, you know, we often went days and days of deer hunting without seeing a deer. And so I thought that that was something that would contribute to my deer hunting experience. And that's what got me into trapping in the first place. As Marcus mentioned, um, the focus of my PhD work at the University of Georgia was trapping coyotes to improve fawn recruitment on two wildlife management areas there. And going into it, um, I fully anticipated to see a significant and consistent effect, a positive effect of coyote removal on fawn recruitment there. Um, and that's just not, that just wasn't the case. Um, and I know we're talking primarily about turkeys today. So just to briefly recap and explain why my thoughts were the way they were at the conclusion of that research is that we had one site that never really had a fawn recruitment problem. And then we had the other site where we had a, a modest positive effect of really, really intensive trapping efforts. You know, they were prolonged in duration and they were over a large spatial scale and we still saw a minimal positive effect. And so that's when I first started to kind of land in the camp that um, just habitat first, habitat always, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think for a lot of people and what Marcus and I have really seen um, throughout this journey, we've been on the past few months with the launching of the podcast is that people really identify strongly with the habitat camp or the predation camp. It almost in, in some cases seems like political parties, you know, how, <laughs> how polarizing it sure. is. So it's so polarizing. And I think at that point in time, I really was strongly in that habitat camp. I was a card carrying member. Um, I still, <laughs> I still land, you know, if for reasons that I'm sure that we'll get into and that we covered in part one of this episode series that, you know, without habitat, you don't have game, you know, regardless mm -hmm. of the, regardless of the predator context. But, um, this recent predation series that we went through, um, has kind of moved me a little bit on this and I'm, I'm coming back around to now what I would say is a more complete and nuanced perspective on the role and the relative value of predator control, you know, yeah. direct predator control. Yeah. I think yeah. it, 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 that was a big Very part. Good. And I'll let you answer Marcus. Cause, um, for me, I've been very intrigued at your guys's delivery, and I'll let Marcus answer uh, what he what he wants to add to that first question. Yeah, well, I, I think that was a good, thoughtful question, and I, I'm similar to Will in terms of my my path. I, my experience trapping was actually, actually as a kid. And uh, and I've done a little bit here and there through my life, but I started, you know, just we, we were catching raccoons to start with. And, and uh, we were we had a place to take the pelts and, you know, I was doing that whole thing and it was a lot of fun. And, and my dad dabbled in it a little bit with my brother. And then I actually did it with my cousins when I was growing up a little bit. Uh, so, you know, that. I was trying to think through though when I was growing up hunting, I didn't really think about predators being influencing what I was hearing or seeing. I, you know, mm -hmm. I just can't recall 
having that thought process. I can remember a few times seeing a coyote and they they weren't that common. I grew up in Alabama. They just weren't that common when I was growing up. I remember hearing them. I remember taking a couple of them, you know, and, and you didn't let one go, but we didn't have a big emphasis on trapping, you know, as a means to have more deer and turkeys. It, like I just, I didn't grow up thinking of it that way. And I guess if uh, if I'm a card carrying member with Will, as he said, <laughs> you know, uh, I certainly would would have fallen into the habitat camp once I started getting educated and and uh, definitely leaned toward that camp. And then I've also gotten a few stamps on that, uh, you know, going to the University of Tennessee and working with Craig and then going to North Carolina State and working with Chris Mormon. You know, they're both very habitat focused people and that has perpetuated that for me but like will uh i really was challenged when we did that that series by a lot of different opinions and a lot of data and the first time that i really got challenged with that actually it was in preparation for another primos podcast with lake uh it was a few years ago and uh, I think it was called the, he called it the trapping conundrum or something, but I realized that biologists often tend to align in that viewpoint, but I could not at that time articulate really clearly why. Mm -hmm. And this is something I think it's important for the audience to think about. I hear it and I see people post something about biologists, that, like there's a conspiracy. <laughs> But, you know, there's a difference in people all aligning on something for a nefarious purpose to mislead, which would be that conspiracy, and people align, aligning on a topic because of it, the, the data aligning. And, you know, uh, the, I, don't, I think we are conflating those two things sometimes. Are you saying trust, trusting the science is what you were doing? Right. Yeah, that like a lot a lot of biologists I don't think can articulate well. And if you're one of these biologists out there, we've tried to lay this stuff out for you and I'll give you the the research and everything and I've gone on the air talking about why trapping may not just be this one-to-one -one relationship. Like it's not intuitive, but we do have a lot of data showing reasons why that occurs. Mhm. Mm we yeah. also have a lot of data like let's look at quail for an for a minute, we talked about them and how much they align with poultry rearing cover with the habitat needs. Well, they're also the canary in the coal mine for this. If you don't have really high quality, uh, early successional vegetation that's in the South often associated with, with really low uh, basal area of trees and high frequency of fire, you don't have quail. It doesn't yeah. matter what how many of the predators there are or anything. Like uh -huh. that—that that is driving their populations, and and you know we know that we have lots of data from a lot of places on a lot of species showing they're inextricably linked to habitat. Right. We need more experiments to show what those effect sizes are, and to demonstrate when you add, you know, components of habitat, what it translates into into demographics of the species, but we have enough data to very confidently say 
habitat is driving the species abundance. Mm -hmm. You know, Marcus, I think another good point that you've used regularly um, to to illustrate this is Texas and rainfall. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't get rainfall in South Texas, you don't have pulse. Um, if you do get it, you do get pulse. And the reason for that is that rainfall is driving vegetation. It's not doing something yeah. to predator communities. Well, not it even matter. went as far to look at the data on the predators in those systems in that circumstance. And when you don't have rainfall, you actually still do have predators. The only difference <laughs> is the vegetation. The whole place is a forbland. I've also used that term regularly. Mm -hmm. I think we should start using that instead of grassland. Like grassland is, is really misleading. That in, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. we say, oh, we want some grassland, and everybody thinks grass, and grass is usually or often detracting from what you're trying to accomplish. So, mm -hmm. okay. we, we we could get on all kinds of uh, <laughs> wormholes here to to go to different different ways with this, and I don't want to, you know to detract from what you're trying to do, but the you know I, I think that we need to to take a step back and think about why that messaging has been so consistent among biologists. And that is because we have pretty strong data to indicate that habitat is consistently very important to populations and trapping. We can show a positive effect in some contexts, but we can't do it consistently. Mm -hmm. that, that's one thing that's come from the literature. When I dug around, we have some instances where trapping is negative to the desired prey yeah. we have a whole bunch of them where we show no effect and we have some in particular contexts with particular species where we can show a positive effect and usually that's contingent on making sure there's not a habitat limiting factor so there is i mean data. that pretty well sums up everything that i've gathered my whole yeah. like the whole adult life of of whether trapping or predation has an effect you just summed it up and 30 seconds. Yeah, I know you yeah. addressed that question to to Will and and uh, Marcus, Adam, but just from to reiterate our stance from Land and Legacy, I think uh, we people people hear certain things, right? Um, and I think they have heard us in years past and continuing to be in that camp of ob obviously pro habitat, just habitat, habitat, mm -hmm. habitat, habitat. But at the same time, people focus on that but in most of the podcasts that we have done, we have also said that if you do trapping, we are not against it. We are for it. It has to be on this, this continuum of the habitat has to be in place. Then you do it and you do it at specific time frames to see a result. Mm -hmm. We've, I think people would, most people would say, again, we're, we don't address trapping like in that manner, but we have been very consistent in that um, relationship to habitat over time. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, a lot more research is coming out that does support that, um, but that has been, let's say, our, our platform, our stance regarding turkeys, quail, and trying to produce more of them on the landscape and that predator-prey relationship with habitat. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a, a great point, and I just wanted to make another thing that, that is kind of building off what you said and what Will said earlier it's sort of like we're in this society where you have to be on one side or the other. Yeah, and I think yeah. a lot of us are kind of in the middle on this, mm -hmm. but you know, people can't, it's, it's, there are some people that just have trouble hearing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
they, they think, like you say habitat first and they think you're saying habitat only. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bingo. And, no and then other people focus on predators and you hear they're saying predator only. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No doubt. And I think most people are in the middle and can understand that habitat needs to be addressed. And if you do that and you give animals the opportunity to take advantage of that, first of all, that is addressing predation. And sometimes yep. it does it better than than removing predators can. Mm-hmm. Yep. But adding the predator removal in with that habitat can give an additional bump. And based on the literature, that is uh, not going to have the same effect size as the habitat did. But that doesn't mean it can't augment it and, and add, yeah. a, you know, another 10 percent mm-hmm. or, or something on it. And that 10 percent may be crucial. And, you know, that may be make it, you know, uh, that may be the blatantly obvious impact that you were looking for anecdotally, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, all what you just said is so crucial in, in helping people understand that a pro habitat guy isn't anti-trapping yes. and a pro trapper isn't anti-habitat. And Lord, I'd, I'd hope not. But I think yeah. one of the biggest things too, for, for like you guys and myself and, and moving forward uh, as a as a as a hunting, you know, as a person on social media and anybody on social media, we should like I have no problem sharing habitat restoration projects that I've done, but you'll never see me share a coyote in a trap or a raccoon in a trap because I don't feel like it's it's helping my case advocating myself as a conservationist, not to say I'm anti trapping. But I just feel like there's a lot of people who are going to cringe at that who are non-hunters. And I feel like if more people kind of accepted that, that just because I don't show it on social media doesn't mean I'm against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I definitely want to get into that, Adam. But um, if I may, I'd like to loop, go back a little bit further sure. and kind of explain where I land on this today. and that's been very much informed by some of these recent episodes that we've had on wild turkey science. And if you guys want more detail on some of these studies I'm about to go into, please go back and, and listen to those episodes because for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to get real deep right. on them right now. The other now, thing but... to add, Will, we also have, we try to link every paper we cover. Yeah. And it's really difficult to do that, especially when you have a bunch <clears throat> of people on there, but we have sure. lots of papers linked right in the show notes where you can go right yeah. to the paper. So right. go ahead. So, so we have, you know, multiple studies coming out right now, as we discussed in part one of, of this episode series with you guys that are sh- showing that brooding and nesting cover super limited across the landscape. When they're there, we've got higher nest success rates, probably higher brood survival. We don't have that data yet, but I, I imagine it's coming before too long. Um, and it's just overwhelmingly positive. Like, you know, that you've got this overwhelmingly positive effect of this vegetation community being present. And then you also, you couple that with knowing it's extremely limited on the landscape, no brainer. That is a high return on investment activity to participate in trying to increase that. Conversely, I will say we have fairly limited data. It's surprising how important, you know, wild turkeys are to so many people, but we have surprisingly limited data on the effectiveness of trapping to increase turkey populations. But of the data that we do have, particularly a couple studies we went in depth on on the on the predation episode series. Um, they were conducted in Alabama and Florida back around the 60s and 70s. 
and they were using widespread trapping combined with strychnine poison eggs to control predators. And they were putting these poisoned eggs out at a, a relatively, not a relatively, a, a very high density. And they were wholesale killing predators across these landscapes. And still, they found a limited effect. You know, there was one of them. One of them said they, yeah, the the Williams paper. He said something along the lines as it wasn't clear if the numbers that they were reporting was even linked to the treatment. Yeah, and so when you have on the one hand this overwhelmingly positive evidence that managing for pulp production cover can benefit turkey populations. And on the other hand, you've got limited data on trapping. We need more of it. Marcus and I are actually in the, in the process of trying to learn more about that and put together an experiment related to it. Um, but, you know, of the data that we do have, it's not, it's not really that exciting. You know, it doesn't get me excited about the potential of trapping, particularly like relatively low intensity trapping that most landowners could implement across relatively small properties and small in this context can be a few hundred acres, you know, compared to the thousands of acres that they were trapping across in in a lot of these studies. So when you add all that up, I don't get real excited about it. Um, Do I want to take it away from anybody? Absolutely not. And I enjoy it myself too. And I think that it can be incorporated into habitat management as well. Sure. Go out to your, your property. You're going to do some, your some timber stand improvement, but that morning, you know, you go out and you run your trap line, then you go do your TSI or you put in your fire breaks, you burn, you know, once the humidity drops later on the day, hundred percent, by all means do it. Um, but, you know, given the collective data that we have on the relative importance of each of these practices, you know, it's hard not to land in the camp of, of a habitat first guy. Um, yeah. If I'm going to, I guess I just labeled myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you labeled it as habitat first, not habitat only. That's right. Yeah. 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 I believe right. Blaine Elmore, and I, I don't quote me on this and please correct me if I am wrong on this. Didn't he say something to the um, extent of his effort time or maybe where he valued the response that he saw on his personal property, his family's property in Georgia was 80% habitat, 20% trapping. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. Would you guys, well, so like, do you fall in that general camp if we're going to just be bare bones basic on like percentages of time and, and relative impact that your time and resources devoted to the land, to the wild turkey would have? Is that something that you would kind of follow? Yeah, I, I think to, to clarify, because uh, I wasn't sure what you're asking initially, Matt, um, Dwayne said that he thinks that, you know, if he had 100 turkeys on his property, he was he was felt pretty confident that 80 percent of those turkeys were there because of the habitat improvements that he had made. OK. And the you know remaining 20 were there. He added those onto the population through his trapping efforts. Understood. Yeah. Um, Understood. So I don't know exactly what the breakdown on his time on each of those activities were. Um, but I could speculate by telling you that he mentioned he had spent years and multiple weeks within each year getting the habitat to the level of quality that he wanted it to, whereas he only trapped for a couple of years for a few weeks each year. Mm-hmm. So I think it would probably, the actual percentage would probably land closer to like 95% plus on habitat and the rest on trapping. Well, the, yeah. the other thing is he, he's also one of the if not the 
expert on habitat management for game birds broadly across several species. He's definitely one of the top. Mm -hmm. And he literally said he couldn't think of anything else to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> habitat first, right? Right. And he, How many landowners are in things. that boat? He, he ran out of ideas as mm -hmm. the one developing a large portion of the knowledge on the topic area as a scientist. And he ran out of ideas. And he also happens to have several really good friends who are also really good experts in that field. And they didn't have any ideas either. So mm -hmm. other than to add trapping, other than to add trapping. So that's kind mm -hmm. of taking you through his thought process to get to that point. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's fair in this conversation to recall that conversation and say, hey, he saw benefit and gain with improving the habitat in turkeys relative to neighbors. Mm -hmm. And then he was having birds, I think, spill over onto neighbors and they were commenting mm -hmm. about it. But then he added trapping and they saw a another kind of big push yeah. on birds too yeah an additional bump um, so, to that but yeah and, and and that's where again we keep coming back to this conversation of habitat first we'll get it there but you'll see that bump if you add trapping when habitat's in place so mm -hmm. it's it does not have to be one or the other it can absolutely be both but but in that both it's habitat first mm -hmm. and i think to the scale of habitat first most people do miss too you're not going to go in TSI five acres mm -hmm. and have this neighborhood yeah. kind of a impact and, and thin it, you know, down to a 40 basal area and add fire, like, woo, cool. It, it, it's more of a landscape impact. Um, and I know that's limiting for people and that's, that's difficult and tough to hear, especially for people on leases, like you guys have talked mm -hmm. about, um, or just limited landowner, private landownership um, properties. But it, it is important to talk about scale. And so that's, goes into a whole nother conversation we won't go today, but cooperatives and talking to neighbors mm. and having this bigger impact. But again, keeping it consistent, habitat first. Well, that, then that brings me up, that brings into my, what was going to be my next question. Out of all the research, it appeared that well-timed trapping, intense trapping during a shorter period during the appropriate time being nesting was a more effective way at controlling the effects of predation on nesting game birds. Am I correct in that assumption or in that statement? Yeah, we <clears throat> we really actually don't have a lot of data on the importance of, of trapping timing. Okay. This is this is something that gets talked about a lot and it's intuitive that you want to give yourself enough lead time to knock the predator population back by, you know, 75, 80% um, up before that critical period of vulnerability. And that you want to continue through that critical period of vulnerability to keep that population down and prevent any compensatory immigration or, or uh, reproduction. But the, the, the handful of studies that have been done on this really haven't played around with the timing of trapping to assess how quickly predators, various species, repopulate these areas after trapping. Um, but, but to your point, Adam, I think it's intuitive that we would want to start, you know, we'll say with just with hen nesting, we'd want to start at least a couple of weeks before that and then continue through it. But I have talked to several landowners that have intensively trapped nest predators um, kind of during the deer season slash late winter timeframe. And then they've taken a break or they've greatly reduced their trapping efforts on the site. Maybe they cut back the number of traps by half or a quarter, something like that. And they're not really picking up a lot of new animals. 
so that's that's data that we need to understand okay. how quickly they repopulate areas. Yeah, because I, yeah. I, I hear that comment a lot. It's like, well, why don't you trap during nesting season because that's when they're going to be predating on it. But I get the fear of how many times their landowner is going to be bumping into hens that are nesting and flushing them off their nest and, and causing <laughs> problems with that. Um, and, I, and I guess one of my other comments on that was, let's say you are a smaller landowner in, in the fact that, you know, you're, you're not, you don't own the entire home range of these birds. So we're talking, you know, a hundred acres, 40 acres. Would you be more um, effective at trapping intensely right before nesting season and during nesting season? And rather than kind of recreational trapping on the weekends and, and, and spending most of your winter trapping, um, you know, there's no research in that, but I'm going to ask you guys, what are your thoughts on that approach? Well, uh, you know, Will was talking about uh, some instances where folks feel like they have trapped intensively enough that they don't see this immediate influx. There's also, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with coyotes, but even the, the paper that I shared recently on quail with the, the trapping and field border stuff, I'm pretty sure in that paper, and I know for a fact in several of the other trapping-related studies, that they kept trapping intensively year after year, and they didn't run out of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and they, they noted that they had the same amount of predators year after year, and they just kept going back and doing it over and over. And I, I think we need more data on it to understand, especially with, like, nest predators like raccoons, what, what are how are they responding from a population standpoint to that? Or, you know, are the neighboring raccoon populations infiltrating how quickly we need data on that to understand it. But based on some of, you know, anecdotally from some of that other literature, especially if you're in a small, you have a small footprint of where you can trap, I think that's the situation where the intense intensity paired with timing might be most important yeah so if you have 40 acres and you're, you're going to try to trap the intensive trapping right at nesting is probably where you would gain the most from that mm -hmm. and but then you, yeah but then marcus as you as you mentioned regardless of property size if you're going to continue to experience the benefits that may or may not come with with trapping hopefully they do um you're going to have to do it every year at a minimum we may not know if that needs sure. to, you know, cease, you know, one, two, three, four weeks, whatever, before the nesting season starts. But we do know that, in fact, it has to be done every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which isn't great news if you're one of those guys that like thinking about TSI. Well, I'm going to TSI for the next couple of years and then I'm going to get a break because, I, uh, you know, it's going to mm -hmm. grow or yeah, um, stuff like that. Uh, invasives i'm going to get rid of these invasives and by golly i'm gonna start burning and that's behind me i shouldn't have to deal with bush honeysuckle anymore but you tell me i have a project that's going to take pretty intense labor every year it's not something to get too excited about mm -hmm. right and we discussed that for a little while with with dr elmore and and he said that that was one of the fact that it has to be recurring and intensive was something that he had used as a justification for avoiding the practice, you know, mm -hmm. when talking yeah. with landowners and thinking about it in his own um, personal experience as well. But I think where he had kind of a mindset shift is when he, when he thought about how he unfairly applies logic 
to the trapping question versus the habitat question, because, you know, he's talking about having to plant annual food plots every year, or, you know, you're burning brooding cover every other year. And, you know, there's a lot of these things that we have to do that are recurring. Um, and I think it's, you know, ultimately just up to each of us to decide whether or not that's worth our time and that we're, you know, realizing a proportional benefit of each of the practices relative to how much investment we're putting into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And reflecting on a, a different aspect of that, uh, you know, I've kind of done the same thing because a lot of the studies where they see a positive effect of trapping, they're doing that at a spatial and temporal scale that is not accessible to Correct. a lot of the people that I that I talk with and, and visit with and everything on this. That doesn't mean it isn't to anybody. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean it couldn't become that way if you get in a cooperative situation. Like, you know, you you could accumulate enough land and do it at that intensity. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not really for me to decide what it's, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think our position is be, okay, here is what the data shows. And this is the spatial and temporal scale at which they were operating so that people understand what that is and they can decide for themselves whether or not they can accomplish that yeah i think and and ultimately you know a little humor into it is this is where when you guys originally you know the first couple of episodes of the wild turkey research podcast came out and i was listening and i'm like and i'm getting some comments from listen from clients of ours and listeners I texted or I messaged you guys and said, hey, I don't know which direction you're going, but if you're going to come out and say that predators are a major problem and we need to be trapping, give me a heads up so I know I'm getting ready to eat crow. <laughs> and so that's ultimately yeah. is like, you know, time and time again, when somebody says research has proven it, I'm like, what research? And come to find out mm -hmm. it's like tall timbers or it's mm -hmm. um, waterfowl in the pothole region. You're like, yeah, but that's mm -hmm. not replicate. You can't replicate yeah. that in, in hardwood mm -hmm. forest or in. And so that's that's been my thing. And, and so out of all the research now you guys are starting to unpack, is there anything that was shocking or anything that like more emphasis on small varmints or more emphasis on coyotes and bobcats like have you seen did, did you feel like you you reach one of those aha moments or you're like okay maybe a little bit of tweak of of what my belief was before we did this can can i take this one marcus yes <laughs> towards <laughs> towards the end of our conversation with with Dwayne elmore i was uh i was getting more positive energy that's probably a terrible term but it sounds hokey but I, I and i and i use it because it wasn't like oh i'm wholesale i'm wholesale into trapping now and i'm going to recommend it to any landowner i ever talk to but i was more optimistic about the benefits that it could have for turkey populations and then yeah. we had brett collier on mm -hmm. and yeah. <laughs> and and you know and i know you guys wanted to talk about this and um we can we can dive into the details, but, you know, he mentioned, you know, two things that really stood out to me. One is that a lot of the nest losses that we chalk up to nest predation are actually scavenging because the hen has already gone for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. The other, and then the second point that, you know, dovetails almost directly into that is that the hen has already, already gone in a lot of cases. Um, not all, but in many cases she's gone because a coyote or a bobcat killed her. Yeah. Right. And 
as soon as, and this ties back in what we were talking about earlier, my PhD research, as soon as coyotes entered the equation as a major predator that could potentially influence turkey population dynamics, it was just kind of one of these, oh my God, moments. Because that, I mean, that's what the focus of my PhD research was on. And, and these animals operate at such a large scale. And you mm-hmm. have so many of them out there that are seeking territories and just waiting to detect a vacancy left in the void by removal of another animal that trying to control their populations is somewhat of a fool's errand. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that kind of, you know, sunk my hopes again. Now, I, I don't know if that's fair because you get back to, to Dwayne's example and he felt he got a 20% increase in turkey populations on a site for, from just trapping um, raccoons and opossums mainly. Um, and, and so this uncertainty just kind of points to the fact that there's still a lot of unknowns related to this, this topic. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was ultimately my belief was like, well, well-timed trapping right and before nesting or right before or during nesting of small raccoons, possums, small predators, skunks would be great. And then I and then I listen to that and I'm like, huh, I guess I need to order some some what is it, MB five fifty or what it Minnesota <laughs> yeah. brand five fifty. I guess I gotta order some traps because maybe yeah. I've been thinking about this all wrong. Maybe it's better to really hammer them during the winter, the small varmints or the small predators, and then hammer the coyotes during uh during the nesting season mm-hmm. and then i got going i'm like this has changed so much and maybe a, you know pause on all of it not enough research for me to make an educated guess i don't know and i think yeah. too at the same time frame there's there's snakes right and there's there's crows that are also into um the equation that you, you're not going to do anything about and and that's just like I don't know if there's a if at at the end of the day the way God designed predator prey relationships and the way that they work on the landscape that there's ever going to be a clear objective that says this is the way to do it to for for ground nesting game birds to be most successful you have to do x x x and this exact time frame i just don't know if that equation is is even going to exist with the complexities of predators and prey and the the variation of predation that these animals do have and that, that that they're basically under um every single time that they lay a nest and they sit on it for 28 days overnight on the ground that's mm-hmm. a horrible situation mm-hmm. yeah yeah. I had a landowner one time ask me if we can teach him to nest in trees. <laughs> I was like, I was yeah. like, great idea, but uh, you get up there and you build a little eagle's nest and you and you yeah. pitch them up. Maybe there. we could just put a box up there and they'll nest in that. Yeah. Then we'd have to deal with great horned owl problems. Checkmate, oh. predators. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. got you good. Uh, yeah. Well, to you know, to chime in on a little bit of this conversation, that that was that's something that I appreciate about Brett that uh, he's willing to, to challenge everybody like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do need more data to, you know, to make a better and in, a stronger inference about this, but some of that does make a lot of sense with, you know, the hen that we do have enough data to know that she's really vulnerable during nesting and brooding. And that makes a lot of sense for anybody out there. She's anchored to a nest through the night 
when she's brooding. A lot of people have probably seen that hand that you can't get to flush away. You may not have known that she probably has poults around her, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and she's hanging out there. It's like she's just definitely vulnerable during that time. But it makes a big difference if she's vulnerable to a raccoon raiding the nest or the poults for that matter, or a coyote, right? That makes a huge difference in what your your, your uh, decision-making would look like from a trapping standpoint. Another thing, it, it kind of came to me after reflecting on that, and, and I talked to Will about it in a follow-up episode, that it dawned on me, raccoons are very commonly implicated as the top nest predator but some of those studies and in fact there are quite a few of them that are simulated nest and what we're actually measuring is scavenging yeah mm -hmm. so sure. that, like Actually, we go put a nest fair. out and then and then see what comes and gets it and then of course raccoons are the first one on the spot well that nest didn't have a hen associated with it that was defending that nest and i've gotten a couple of videos and uh that several more that people have sent me since we aired that stuff that, you know, show hens pretty aggressively defending from uh, possums and raccoons. They seem to be pretty good at it, at least some individuals. And in a couple of those cases, they successfully pulled off in their nest and, and uh, hatched a brood, even though they were repeatedly, uh, you know, uh, harassed harassed yeah that's the word i was looking for harassed by one of these nest predators and i'm putting quotes around the nest predators because it made me start thinking well i don't know <laughs> you know I, I, like is she really just defending it from those and then you know i started thinking about okay well if you've got a raccoon that's coming by and and she whips him a couple of times to see stop coming by I don't mm -hmm. know. I mean, we've got a few videos uh, from people showing they, they come back over and over. But, uh, you know, I just started thinking about how complex that relationship was. And then if you take that same logic, okay, well, she's defending from a raccoon and maybe she's fine with that. Well, what if it's a big boar raccoon? Or what if it's a coyote and she tries to defend it from the coyote? Well, he's going to eat her. Mm -hmm. Right? So, like, it, it really made me start rethinking this whole thing and you know the ultimate implication is what to do about it mm -hmm. uh, but we have to, to link back into habitat for a moment we have pretty good evidence that we can in, increase their survival and decrease predation by improving the nesting and brooding conditions yeah that she's doing that in totally. so we know that yeah but in yeah. terms of trapping and effort and and what to focus on and that sort of stuff that to me is is a little less certain because of that conversation because i don't know which predator is most important or which one we should focus on or even consistently whether we can move the needle doing that we you know yeah. we know from anecdotes we're batting a thousand percent i think is what uh will said when anybody <laughs> yeah, sure. that's engaged in trapping has has major success but we just can't demonstrate that experimentally very consistently mm -hmm. and that which makes me pause on that a little bit uh not again it's not making me a habitat only person but it is making me question when and where the place is for trapping to be most effective well as we talked about the 
Primo's podcast and the layers of the onion when it came to baiting. And every time you peel back something, you're like, yeah, that's not good. Yeah, it's not good. And with trapping and predation, like you peel back a layer of that and you're like, well, we can't prove it. And then you peel mm. back another one and you're like, well, it's not, it, it's, it's a lot of effort and it has mm-hmm. to, it has to be done every single year. And you peel back another layer and you're like, I just don't have the means or the time to do it. And I peel back another layer and you're like, well, trapping during nesting season. And that's where I really wanted to focus a part of this conversation was trapping during nesting season. This is kind of the elephant in the room for, for me is like, the obvious is most importantly trapping in historically was done for pelts to mm. sell pelts, make extra money. We've kind of shifted now into a world of we're trapping for balance is a pretty common word that gets used. We're trapping to improve the the diversity on the landscape uh, specifically for a species I like most, which would be XYZ game species, quail, turkey, deer, whatever it may be. But these predators aren't in prime pelt condition and during the spring when you're during the spring during nesting season Mm -hmm. and so what are we going to do with those pelts is the big question like you know we we're fortunate enough to work with a lot of different landowners and there's a lot of times a very serious hunter and land manager and a wife who's very passionate about the land and the butterflies and the and the flowers that may not be on board. She's on board with hunting, but she's a little uneasy about trapping. And I can almost rest assured knowing that if they're hammering predators during nesting season, and because the pelt is not worth anything, and that animal is going into a ditch or a hole and being buried with nothing other than being killed, it's certainly not winning her over in regards to being a strong advocate for trapping. It's not winning. It's not winning a lot of people over just non-hunters in general. I mean, mm-hmm. if that gets posted on social media and bragged about, that's not a good outlook um, or or image that hunters are promoting or or basically putting on themselves for anybody who who's out there looking. Much less the wife who wants to be a part of that land. Yeah, I think guys, this is a a super important conversation for us to have right now, and I know. It's a it's somewhat of an uncomfortable one for us because we're biologists and that's what we think, you know, we think in terms of biology, but this is getting into, you know, the social aspects of various management practices. But I think we're kind of, I'm optimistic that we're at a point in time right now where acceptance of hunting by the general public is higher than it has been, you know, for, for at least like the past few decades that I've been around hunting at least. Um, and I think a lot of that, shift in perspective has come from the field to fork movement right and the increased understanding and value that people have for procuring your own free-range organic meat and the increased understanding that the the non-hunting public has that you know it it it, it, it used to blow my mind how many people would come to my house and see mounts and think that we did not eat that animal (laughs) you know particularly with shoulder mounts of deer they all the time, all the time. And, um, now I don't think that that's as prevalent. Like people understand. And like, you know, we serve, my wife and I serve game meat at our house all the time. And, and a lot of non-hunters appreciate that. And, and so I think that that has helped garner us some, some, uh, understanding from the public. And so I would hate to see that, you know, squandered 
because we want to throw up, you know, raccoon pile pictures for internet clout, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, so I think clicks. it's, just, yeah, it might even, but not might just be for attention. And, yeah. and I think, so I think this is something that we all need to really be thinking about in terms of what is our objective or motivation for showing pictures like that and for broadcasting that we're implementing this practice. Are you legitimately, when you post that picture, trying to advocate for trapping and increase participation because you think it is a, vi a valuable practice to recover uh, populations of wild turkeys, which are struggling in some areas? Mm -hmm. Or are you doing it just to say, you know, hey, look what I did kind of yeah, thing? Yeah. I'm going to pound my chest and post this picture. I, I, I think of it a lot like, you know, as a, as a my family farm, we've got cattle. And uh, you think, okay, how could we how could we market our beef in a in a way that people would want to buy directly out of the pasture from us? And like, how could I get people to instead of having to go to the sale barn or do something? How could I get more money from my from my the beef that we've grown here? And I would never think about you know what? Let's just post the process of making it and and having beef here. Let's post pictures of slaughter day and the process. I wouldn't win anybody over doing that. Specifically and, and, when you slit the throat to let it drain out. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. Let's do yeah. that. Let's post that picture, please. Yeah. You never see that on social media. And now we get into this, you know, we're going to bring turkeys back. And it seems like, you know, any way to bring turkeys back. And it's like this, the the, the piles of of pelts, even just, even just a, uh, uh, a handful of in the back of UTV, I feel like has a, you can almost always find that if somebody posts a picture and there's a dozen raccoons in the back, there's going to be an angry con or an angry face uh, like on Facebook in particular. And you're like, okay, well, there's some people that didn't like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how we navigate this outside of just trying to encourage our friends that are trappers just to not show it yeah um you know i've seen some people moving towards just posting pictures of the traps themselves or yeah you know the process mm -hmm. of making mm -hmm. sets and things like that versus you don't always have to show the dead animal i don't think mm -hmm. and, and i think that there's this like i think some people maybe you know their toes are getting squashed right now in this moment um because they're they are proud of maybe their achievements and what they're doing and really feel that, Hey, this is, this is a part of me. We're not at all suggesting that, that you let's say shouldn't be proud, but like, maybe like, let's just kind of put that into check. Like you can be proud, but you don't have to just put it on blast for everyone to mm -hmm. comment and then sit there and just be like, this is, this is the hill that I'm going to die on kind of thing. Go do it. Know that you're having an impact and be satisfied with that because at, at the same time, you're casting an image potentially for other people to see and make and judge of other hunters that everyone's doing this. And that's just part of the lifestyle. And that's just part of the culture where we don't, we can go and do that, but we don't have to sit there and it's like completely, um, again put that stake in the ground just like pound our chest of what what it is we think we've accomplished um because at the end of the day that that is that is a that is an animal and and we're we're killing and um let's say making piles so we can produce another animal an animal to an animal is an equal exchange in my opinion game or non-game but but we're not acting as if that is the case from but but again we're going to put on the hat of, of a conservationist all at the same time 
it's it's a yeah. conflicting message for people. Well, and Dwayne even articulated this when when he was on our show that I, I can and I'm the same way. He he said that he could relate to that vision that wait you're going to kill a whole bunch of animals and in some case they're they're portrayed as being in, inhumane. I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying I can see where someone might see a whole pile of of bloody animals as being you know connecting that to being inhumane as well uh and you're going to do all of that so that you can make them enough of another animal so that you can shoot it right like that Mm -hmm. i can see where that could be conflicting to people no Mm -hmm. doubt no doubt and and you know the the other thing that i've been sitting here thinking about while i'm listening to you guys talk about this it's really easy to get hunters and non-hunters behind a field of flowers Mm -hmm. that's not like we don't even need to demonstrate that that's poult rearing cover and that we're going to make a lot of turkeys mama's going to be behind that no doubt right you know what i'm saying like the average public person in public is going to be behind poult rearing cover Mm -hmm. but and to the degree that we even do that on the side of the highway we have places where we have you know they're not doing it for poult rearing cover they're they're uh, doing it for pollinators or whatever, or maybe just beautification, but a field of flowers, most everybody just gets behind that. No questions asked. We're all in that. Mm-hmm. And hunter or not. But the, you know, the trapping aspect, there is a proportion of people who are just not going to be behind that, whatever the case. And then some of them, you know, think about we, we have these widespread issues with turkeys and one of the the tools in our toolbox is potentially trapping, but uh, you know, a lar- large portion of the public may not be behind us using that tool, even if it does help with the decline. Yeah, so I think my you know that that's important for us to think about and be really careful about how we're portraying ourselves. Uh, you know, the the habitat stuff. Most people just fall in line with that, and and you know there no one questions it but well i guess in some cases they might like if it's timber harvest or something but you know uh with uh the trapping that that's inherently just a more sensitive topic for us to to portray i agreed and i think that's my biggest concern is that all four of us have agreed in this podcast that we're advocates for trapping but my biggest fear is that the aggressive killing of these species for the sake of another species being shared on social media is a slope that's going to result in us losing those rights to be able to trap as liberally as we choose. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to be able to, we'll we'll lose that management tool altogether. And then everybody will be in the trapping boat then yeah, <laughs> yeah. or in, yeah. in the habitat boat i mean we'll yeah. all be habitat yeah. Uh, by law only yeah, yeah by law that's my biggest fear and i and i hope you know that message can continue to get out there because you know as yeah. as this movement has shifted to more and more people trying to do things uh for turkeys in particular you get the bad with the good mm-hmm. and i'm seeing a lot of the bad hit social media and i'm like oh man i just almost am like buckle up boys because we're going to be in on a f- for a fight on this one 
Yeah. We don't and need it, to shoot ourselves in the foot here. And this yeah. is and, and make no mistake, this is one hundred percent on the anti's radar because mm-hmm. we have states that are oh, yeah. passing laws right now to expand trapping opportunities specifically to try to benefit game species. You know, allowing there's certain states like Tennessee is a recent example. Um, expanded the time, the window. I don't know what it was previously, but I know that they've expanded it out where you can trap raccoons outside of that ideal time of the year to to harvest fur, um, specifically to to again benefit game species. And if you think that you know, like HSUS or PETA is not aware of that change that's been made, and they're just looking for ammo to start a movement to get that changed or restricted in some way, I mean. that's just very naive you don't think they're gonna go look online for examples to use against exactly yeah and and the other thing is there there are places where some of those restrictions are already in effect where people are becoming more restricted uh and i'm not saying it's a direct result of that i'm just saying it's not helpful when you're you know you have you're portraying it online in one way and that's adding clout to the opposing argument and you know we have states where there are some restrictions already on what when and what you can do uh and you know Dwayne brought up a, a lot of good information from Europe where the same kind of sentiment is there and they have gotten to a point where uh you know the the restrictions are pretty severe or even you know it's completely not a tool anymore yeah uh for, history for will repeat management. itself if we allow it mm-hmm. yeah all right so you kind of moving away from that now you've done we've we've covered the habitat podcast we've covered portion big portions of the predator podcast so far have you guys felt like your approach has changed and a better question to that would be you have 300 acres in you name the state and your goal is to help the turkey in a 12-month calendar year what would your workload resources look like where would you spend your time will 95 percent habitat yeah. Um, and what I mean, kind I of habitat in particular? Well, I guess it, you know, brooding cover. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, brooding I mean, and nesting it, cover. You know, go go to your property. Let's say you have that three hundred acres, and zoom out, and take a look and see what what's there. It, it, you know, based on a lot of studies, it's probably brooding cover is probably going to be limiting. But you need to make that assessment. Figure out okay, what is limiting? Is, is it you know, is it brooding cover? Maybe you already have some maps of your property or you have the capability to kind of map things out. And I know that's a service provided often by people that you can hire to do that kind of stuff or whatever. But figure out, okay, what what proportion of my landscape is in these different components? And if you're in the situation where 7% of it is brooding and nesting cover, that's probably a good place to focus. Well, you're probably right. off to a good start if you've got seven percent. Yeah, I agree on I, that. I, I agree too. But you're, you know, I, I think that's one step that you need to to take is think about 
what am I doing and what are my neighbors doing and try to quantify that and get some kind of really good idea rather than just, well, you know, I think they did this and, you know, I, well, mine's probably 5% or what, you know, just look at a map and see, you know, what, what is existing there and let that guide you. And almost 100% of the time, there are things from a habitat standpoint that need to be and could be addressed. And I agree that my focus would always start there until I run out of ideas, right? And then we're in maintenance mode and then you can start to allocate time a little differently if you get to that point, but that's a pretty rare situation to be in. Yeah, um, to add to that, you know, if this is, if this is a place that is close by where I live, or, you know, I even have a place to stay out there on the weekends or stuff like that with the family, um, to be perfectly honest, like I'm probably going to start trapping immediately. If I'm not seeing, you know, abundant Turkey populations on the property, I've, I've done a lot of it and I can, I can do it pretty efficiently. Um, so, you know, it's gonna, if I'm staying out there on the property, I'm going to, you know, set my, set my traps, run my trap line in the morning. And then, you know, anything else that I've got to do, whether it be something from TSI to putting in fire breaks to actually burning or planting or whatever discing, um, I'm going to do that, you know, later in the day. Cause I can on 300 acres, I can run my trap line in you know, 30 minutes or, or less. What kind of traps mm -hmm. and what, what predators are you targeting in those traps? All of the above? Yeah. On a few hundred acres. I mean, I think, you know, one of the we don't really have a good number for the density of traps that you need, but, you know, for anecdotally, Dwayne, you know, he shared when he was predator trapping, he had a trap for about 15 acres and he trapped for about two to three weeks a year. And mm -hmm. so I'm thinking of, I'm going to run dog proofs at a density of about one per 15 acres or so. And then I'm going to put out, you know, footholds for coyotes and bobcats on an as needed basis, you know, like all my major road and trail intersections, but you know, on a 300 acre property, I'll probably wouldn't have more than, you know, four or five of those out. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I like, I like running MB five fifties, just personal preference. One well, just a shout gonna, out for them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to add, they've helped, they've helped me out a lot in both research and management. So there you go. Uh, I, I was going to add that Dwayne came up with, with that number, which works out to about a trap night per acre. Mm -hmm. And uh, we estimated uh, with some backdoor math from those those studies we covered uh, that it was roughly a, about a trap night per acre on those as well. So that kind of gives you some baseline of trying to accomplish what they are. Uh, now, of course, Dwayne, we've already belabored that he ran out of habitat options. So he was doing that. Uh, on top of of the habitat work but uh you know that's a good starting point for you to think about what kind of intensity are we talking about here yeah and uh you know 30 traps for 10 nights is you know uh, probably something that a lot of people could accomplish in that that uh scenario hmm. so definitely uh you know important for you to think through with this whole process yeah man well that's all good stuff guys i don't want to take up any more of your time we've pretty much burned up the whole morning on uh <laughs> predators and habitat um but a lot of really good conversations 
And I hope that many of the listeners, the biggest takeaway for me is, you know, trying to get the message out about, you know, avoiding those harmful social media posts um, that, that could cause problems for a great management tool that we can all use. Um, but guys, uh, I hope you continue with the Wild Turkey Research Podcast. I hope more and more people are listening. I hope this message gets out there. We'll do our part in sharing it on our platforms. And I, and I hope you guys, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what guests and content you line up in the future for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys, for having us. I, I really appreciate it and and all the support from you guys. It's been awesome and and love the, the work that you guys put out and the content. and and uh just really appreciate that yeah thanks guys we really appreciate it keep it up guys thanks for your devotion and uh i guess adam will uh we'll probably have a follow-up or something here with these part one and two for ourselves but Mm -hmm. um you know appreciate you guys coming on sharing your knowledge and thanks everyone for listening um and joining us here for this podcast series with the wild turkey science podcast (laughs) 